How you doing? Trust you're doing well. My name's Peter. I'm, I'm one of the, uh, the leaders at the church here and probably in some church somewhere in the world, I'm probably going to hell for preaching in thongs. So, uh, but I'm just going to go ahead with that. This is a first for me. I've, I've baptised them in water at the back of my feet in water at the back of the church before I started. So you can, you, I'm kidding. Um, you can relax in that. Look, some of you have, uh, have been asking, in fact, a lot of you have been asking me for a, a good while now. Can you please, can you please bring in some mementos of your childhood? You know, last week there was about 60 of you that said, we just, we just want to see some stuff from your childhood. Can we... Why are you laughing at me? So I thought, see this here, this is, uh, this is the, the special Sondergel Brown box. Yeah, and I thought I'm going to bring in some stuff from my childhood to show you this morning, all right? And it's pretty impressive, right? So uh, I'm prepared if you gasp, like in delight, as I show you this. Let me show you a couple of things here. Look at that. Isn't that, isn't that impressive? Let me... No, just wait, though. Just wait. You haven't even heard the inscription. Some of you wouldn't even know what this is, all right? And those who do, you're going to laugh. This is uh, the Pathfinders 1980 Under-7s uh, trophy for soccer. Yeah. I was the captain. Yeah. Yeah, see? All right. So uh, I also... Um, let me uh, get it in, uh, in order here. Look at this. This. Yeah, come on. See, that's actually me. It is, really. Uh, and let me read the caption. Acacia Ridge Presbyterian under eight soccer. So that was Christian soccer. All right? There's a big difference. If you've ever played in the inter-church soccer competition in Toowoomba, you know that Christian soccer is a lot different to non-Christian soccer. It's much ruder and it's a lot more brutal. Um, that was under eights. And look at this one. Look at this. I even grew up like I'm a bit bigger here. This is um, uh, Brisbane Soccer Club, 86. I actually won something. Like, like the winners of uh, under-13s, all right? So, uh, you know, the other ones are like you're a winner. You, you know how it works. Like when you're a kid, it's like you're a winner if you even play. And then as you get older, you've got to actually do something to be a winner. You know, um, let me just stick with this one for a minute. This trophy here is a trophy a physical representation and reminder of a former glory. Isn't it? Isn't that what it is? Um, and you're not that impressed by it. I know you laughed and you're smiling at me, right? But you're not that impressed, right? It's like, okay, all right. I, I played under 17 soccer and I was the captain and we won and I kicked the winning goal. Like, I don't, like, yeah, okay, cool, all right? But at some level, I, this is in a box. It, it is not on display, right? It, it, isn't, it isn't that impressive. All right. What we're going to look at today, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at the fact that, uh, that God has made you to be a visible representation of his glory. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. I'm going to start at, uh, at verse 1. If you're uh, new to the Bible, the, uh, the big numbers of the chapter... Numbers, the small numbers of the verses. You can find the page number for Ephesians by uh, looking at the contents in the front of the Bible. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're just going to read from verse 1, actually verse 1 to 10. Uh, those who've been around the last few weeks are, are quite familiar with uh, the early stages here. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It would be true to save you spiritually that outside of Jesus, there is no hope for you. In fact, you were dead. You didn't need CPR, you didn't need to be resuscitated, you were dead. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then these two sublime words, aren't they? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'd love you to leave that, um, that scripture open today, because we're going to go back and kind of dig into that a little bit. Um, Here's the big idea today, you are God's trophies of grace. And I know that's a, a well-worn kind of theme uh, with feel-good kind of Christian writers, but it is actually true. And this is what Paul actually talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. You're a trophy of God's grace. So today, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a divine affluence, a gracious act, and an enduring trophy. Go with me to verse 7 of Ephesians 2 there. Verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. You go back to verse 4 there. You can see it actually says in verse 4 that God is rich in mercy and he's got great love. There's the richness of his grace. If you go to chapter 1, just duck back across to chapter 1 and verse 18 there. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? The inheritance that you get comes out of God's riches. Go over to chapter 3 verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened. Go down to verse 19. And to the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's the bottom line of this first point. It's going to be a quick point. God is incredibly rich in things that are incredibly helpful. It's true, right? It's like we're sitting there and you say, if I say God is affluent, some of us would go, oh, well, has he got a big house? No, it's better than that. You go, oh, has he got gold bullion? He's got a few, a few sheds full of gold bullion? No, it's even better than that. God is rich and affluent in all the things that you desperately need. And that's good news. Amen? Amen. Really, really good news. Point number two. And in a gracious act have a look down there at uh, chapter 2 just at verse 5 there what did God actually do in his great mercy and love when we were dead he made us alive you see Jesus died on the cross so that you could live and in the same way that Jesus died under the weight of the sin of everyone that was put on him he lived after that, he came back to life. And what does God do? He sticks you to Jesus. <laughs> How could you not live if you're stuck to Jesus, right? And this is this amazing uh, act that God has actually done. We were so needy, yet so unable to supply our own needs. 
It's, it's all the work of God. This is what Paul's actually saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. This, this whole process by which you actually come alive again spiritually is all God's work. You know, the world that you live in is probably about 95 to 98% based on what you do. It's based on works, right? If you don't work hard at work, you get the sack. You, want, you need to perform. There's so many areas in our society that are about performance. This is something that has nothing to do with performance. Dead people perform nothing. And God does this amazing work where he stitches you to Jesus and brings you to life. See, grace, and I want you to hear me this, I'm going to dip back into this next week. Grace is not mathematical. It's not this plus this equals that. Nothing equals grace except for God's gracious character. So if you're a church here this morning and, and you don't know God, you don't get in God's good books by doing good things. Because you're dead spiritually. You can't do anything to please him. You get in God's good books because he puts you in his good books because he loves you and he extends his grace and his mercy toward you. It's like if you bring into church, and churches often do this, right? But if you bring into church what we do in culture, which is like you have to perform to be accepted, you're going to get it all wrong. You can't perform. God has joined you to Jesus. How could you not live? He's given us the greatest gift. And let's just go one step further. Point number three. Some of you are going, this is going to be a cracking short sermon. Peter's become a Christian. It doesn't go as long anymore. Have a look at Ephesians um, 2, uh, verse 7 then. Right? What, what is the ultimate purpose for God raising you from the dead? Listen to this. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not actually saying that God's planning to be gracious and kind to you for the rest of eternity, which he is. But that's not what this text is saying. What this text is actually saying is that the purpose of you being saved and him pouring out his mercy, his not giving you what you deserve and pouring out his grace upon you, you getting a whole bunch of things that you don't deserve. The reason why he's doing that is because for the rest of eternity, you are going to be, if you love him and you belong to him, you're going to be a walking trophy that displays the mercy and the grace of God. Is anyone excited about that? That's pretty exciting, right? You know, like, that's not that exciting. Okay? I mean, it doesn't even move without me moving it, right? But here's the thing. We, we as humans, we've got ways of remembering wonderful things that have happened in the past. Well, think about that. You are actually a walking, living trophy that God has has saved and you're actually going to walk around for the rest of eternity demonstrating how rich God is in his mercy and his grace. Just uh, stop for a minute. You notice there's a sneaky little word that, uh, that Paul brings in there in verse, uh, in verse 7 there. Just go back to it. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. And just think about Kindness. I mean, anyone who grew up in the church probably got a sticker in Sunday school at some, some point in time which said, be ye kind. Did any, who got one of those? You got one of those, said, be ye kind. And you just go, oh, that's kind is what kids do. No. I mean, just think about a world where there's no kindness. 
Think about that. See, you know what kindness is? Kindness is love in tender action. You see, what's Paul doing here? He's grabbing more words. He's going, how can I actually tell you about how gracious and merciful God is toward you? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you now that he's kind to you. You know, think back with me. Some of you would know, like in, in Romans 2 verse 4, it says, or, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, you know what kindness does when it hits a heart that's ready for it, it has a massive impact, massive impact. And, and many of you here today are testimony to that. You see, God has displayed more than skill. A patient after a major operation is a living testimony to the surgeon's skill. And a condemned man after a reprieve to his sovereign's mercy, we are both, we exhibit God's skill and we are trophies of his grace. Now, here's the thing. Um, it's about him, and it's about what he's done. You see, it's, it's not just about the fact that God saved people. It, there's a larger purpose there that is actually the, the, the display of God's glorious grace and mercy. You see, you could, you could probably say that raising someone from the death is a demonstration of the supreme power of God and the seating of us in the heavenly places with God is a demonstration of his surpassing grace. You see, heaven will be a place where trophies walk around and for the rest of eternity, people will, we will probably look at each other and just marvel and just go, that was amazing, wasn't it? That was amazing. And maybe we'll have conversations about it and we just go, that was amazing. What Jesus did on the cross to save you is incredible. You see, sometimes we can get, and Nick is in a nod, if I can say that. We hear all this talk about God's glory and we feel like he's going to leave us behind. Do you ever feel like that? So it's like God's glorious, he's important, he's central, we need to worship him. And sometimes the human heart can just kind of go, oh, maybe he's just going to be self-centered, he's just going to think about himself and I'm going to get left behind. Well, that's just so off the cards. <laughs> it's so off the cards. It's so off the cards because of the Trinity. I mean, if you know anything about the Trinity, the Trinity is, is God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that's the Godhead, and they all ceaselessly are unselfish toward one another. So to have this suspicion straight up that God's selfish, he's going to leave me behind, is probably not correct just even at that point. But what we actually see here in Ephesians 2 is that God's care and his love and his mercy toward us is connected to his glory. You see, if God's been made, sorry, not been made, if God is the centre of everything and he's always been the centre and things need to orient around him and one way that that can happen is by him being merciful and gracious to you, that is like a perfect combination, isn't it? You with me? So, yeah, let's have more of that. So tomorrow when I need more grace and mercy from you, God, it's actually going to glorify you and make you look as great, in part, I guess, not in, the, in fullness, but it's going to make you look more great in the eyes of people. Now, you don't actually have to look too far to find this connection between God's glory and him being grace, gracious to us in the Old Testament. Can you duck over with me? I just want, to, want you to see it with your own eyes. Go to Isaiah. Isaiah 48. 
Now, this is a prophecy against Israel, right? Israel were a real pain in the hiney for God, okay? They didn't want to do his stuff. They ended up not loving it. I mean, it was a mess a bunch of the times. And sometimes it went pretty well, but it seems most of the time it was a bit of a mess. And this is one of those prophecies kind of against Israel, but it's not if you kind of see how it plays out. Look at verse 9 of Isaiah 48. Listen to it. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Listen to this. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, you can see this uh, in lots of different places in the Old Testament, where God's being good to us occurs in spite of us. And it's all about, and it's just like, in one sense, it's like that's going to be perfect because we're pretty ordinary a lot of the time and we don't actually offer God anything that's really useful to him. And so the great hope for us is that he wants to just exercise himself to be gracious and merciful to us so that people would rejoice in that grace and that mercy. You are a living trophy of the grace of God just walking around, just sitting here today. And you will be forever. Okay, here's, uh, here's where we're going to go now. I just want to transition now. We've just kind of done, here's the theology, here's the practice, all right? Here's, here's a good question, I think, that you could be asking. How can I be a good trophy of grace? How can I do that? How can I bear the marks of the grace of God? And I want to give you some really specific pointers, just five specific pointers here today. Here's the first one. You need to live on grace. A good trophy lives on grace. A good trophy of grace relies as much on God alive spiritually as they did when they were dead, which is completely and totally. Nothing has actually changed. One of the things that humans do sometimes is humans kind of get into this kind of framework with God where they they feel like um, they've got to pay a debt back to God. And I don't know whether you've ever heard it, but people say things like, you need to obey God, you need to do what God says because uh, he's been really good to you. Well, that's really hard to find that truth in the Bible. It's really hard to find it. Uh, God really clearly through the scriptures is saying, follow me and obey me because I'm going to give you more grace. I'm going to get you more in debt to me. That's his gig. God's gig is not he needs people to pay him back. God's gig is that he just wants people to get more in debt. And a good trophy doesn't make God their debtor. That's the other side of it. So one side of it is, I'm not trying to pay God back. You know what the other side is? It's not some kind of cosmic, you invited me over for dinner, so I've got to invite you over. Do you get what I'm saying? Like We're not doing things for each other so that the other person will do what we want. You see, dead people do nothing to earn the kindness of God. And it's not right to think that you could actually do something for God that he needs to make him your debtor either. And we, we kind of do that sometimes. You know, I don't know whether you've ever said it or heard someone say things like this. I've followed God for all of my life. Why has this trouble happened to me? And then they fall away. Then they... They give up on God because something bad happened. I'll tell you something. You know what's inherent in that? And I don't want to be unkind and harsh, but inherent in that is that they feel like they provided God something that he needed and that he owed them something. You can't pay him off 
and you can't earn anything. And he doesn't owe you anything. Do you get what I'm saying? Like this whole debtors thing, it just, it doesn't work. All right? A good trophy of grace kind of just says, listen, I was dead. There was nothing that I could contribute. God didn't owe me anything. And he was incredibly gracious and merciful to me. He was completely free. You walk around saying there is no contract between God and I. Because there isn't. There's no obligations in a contract between God and you. Because God saved you. God was gracious to you when you were dead. John Calvin says this. He says, Faith brings a man empty to Christ that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. And that's, that's a good description of, of the state of humanity. So you don't serve or follow God or obey him to pay him back or to make him your debtor. We're not doing that. That's, that's kind of not how it rolls. And you can see that out of... Ephesians 2. Uh, what about this one? A trophy of grace um, doesn't try to impress God. You'd be a good trophy if you don't try to impress God. Have you ever tried to impress him? Have you ever prayed a prayer and at the end of the prayer thought, oh, yeah, I think I nailed that. <laughs> like you'd be impressed with it. You know, or maybe you did, the, you did your devotion in the morning, you spent some time in the Bible and you go, yeah, he's going to like me for that. I remember, um, I, I've done it. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been the person that's thought that God was impressed by my elocution in a prayer. It's like I, the words, the phrasing, it's just like that, that is pretty impressive. <laughs> and maybe for you, it's that you came to church, you read your Bible, you fasted, you dot 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 you think you can impress him see a, a good trophy of grace um, doesn't think that they can impress God why would you need to if you were dead and God graciously and mercifully saved you and made you alive why what on earth could you even do to impress him what you know why would you start and some of you know uh, some of you know the scripture from Galatians 3, and I'm going to get to it again in a minute, but uh, where Paul actually says to the Galatians, he says, how is it that you started by grace, you started by God's kindness, and now you're doing it by works? Like, you couldn't impress God, and it got you in, but then after that, we've actually got to operate to impress Him. And I'll tell you something, um, Christianity is probably more riddled with functional belief that we have to impress God than what you think. And you probably are. You probably, at a gut level, you, you probably operate trying to impress God more than what you think. You see, if I can just use a sporting analogy, it's like the difference, my boys play rugby, and it's like the difference between juniors rugby and teenage rugby you know what the difference is in juniors rugby there's no no one keeps a record of scores you know how it works the parents do i can remember it for the last six years every game no one keeps a record of scores and there's no ladder but as soon as you kick into 13 years rugby there's a ladder and their scores recorded all right and what actually happens in juniors rugby is it's like everyone just get out and have a crack 
That's what it's about. Have a crack, just get out and have a run. Oh, we just got scored against because that guy can't tackle. Yeah, and then another six times. Yeah, that's cool, man. Okay, it's time for you to come off, not because you're bad, but because you've had your five minutes on the field. Let's put someone else on. That's juniors rugby, right? But you get into, into teenage rugby and then seniors rugby, oh, then it becomes about performance. You know, and, and there's a very real sense in which God's set things up, I think, because of his abundant grace to be more like junior rugby than teenage rugby. Do you get, you get what I'm saying? And we start playing teenage. Just go, oh, it's about performance now. You know, yeah, yeah, I get that, all right? I get that we got into this thing because God was gracious and it wasn't about performance, but now I've got to get on the treadmill of performance and somehow try to impress God. Grace, and the grace and mercy of God got you here, and it's his grace and mercy that keeps you here. So you don't go around trying to impress him. And you know... This, this might sound a bit harsh. I just feel to say this. He actually won't be impressed by you. Really? And what am I saying? Am I saying that he doesn't value your obedience and the things that you do? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if you're going around thinking that it's going to earn you something with God, it just won't. It just won't earn you anything. In fact, When I have prayed and got my elocution right and said the right words and at the end of it thought that I impressed God, I've probably just earned some demerit points if, if we're operating on that scale. And I'm not saying that we are because it is of grace. But uh, do you get what I'm saying? Uh, that's probably how it would work. Like, it, it's kind of like sometimes I think God... Sometimes things like this are kind of like, do you, do you really want to play that game? Because if you're going to play by those rules, it's not going to go well for you. And sometimes we kind of play by a game that's got rules that just don't work. And we think we can kind of have a bit of a poke at it and do something that's going to work for a little bit of the time. But it's like, if we actually do everything that way, I mean, it happens in our house at home. Um, you know, what, what's the instinct when someone sins against you is you just pay them back. And it seems pretty, a pretty good idea at the time. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It's paying back, right? But then when you stop and think about it, what if this whole house, this whole family, actually operated consistently by those principles? And we all paid one another back. Who wants to live in that house? Like no one, right? Like you can't live in that house, you know? And sometimes when we start, we, we, kinda, we can get into thinking about trying to impress God and think, oh yeah, we can actually work inside of those categories and I think I can do a few things to impress him. It's like, you want to actually apply that across the whole of your life? That's going to be a bondage and a slavery to you. It's a grace and mercy is going to release you. Number three, a good trophy lives from acceptance, not for acceptance. Let me be really clear about this. A good trophy doesn't think they are worthy just because they get something right. See, I think a good trophy of grace, a shiny trophy... Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying that you're not a trophy of grace if you're not doing these things. I'm just saying you're probably not as shiny as you could be. So let's, let's see if we can get a bit more shiny. That's, that's really what I'm saying here. You see, a good trophy of grace doesn't tend to ask questions like, do you like me? Do I meet my own standards? Not, maybe not even do I meet God's standards. A good trophy of grace starts 
at the beginning of life for them and says, I was graciously accepted by God. And that's not going to change. So you don't have to win anything anymore. And the weird thing is I can stand up here and talk to you about this and some of you can go, yeah, I don't think I have a problem with acceptance. But, you know, I reckon probably most people do. And, and you just don't know how much slavery is in your life because of your drive to be accepted, either meeting your own standards, meeting other people's standards, trying to meet God's standards. I wonder what would happen and what would change in your life. I wonder what would change in all of our lives, my life included, if we at a really deep core foundational level were absolutely 100% persuaded that God has accepted us in Jesus. What would change? Like, I reckon you would. I mean, Ephesians 3 talks about the fact that, we looked at this before, that God's love surpasses knowledge. And you need strength to understand it. So you don't, you don't get all of God's love yet. So what if you did? What if it permeated and went right down to the depths of who you are? What would change in you? You see, listen to this. Uh, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see that? He's not working for approval. He's working from approval. That's what he's doing. There's a big, big difference. And he works hard. You see, there's, there's a sense, we're going to get to this next week, there's a sense in which... There is work that comes out of being accepted and being made new by Christ, but it's a whole different uh, vibe to what we're normally uh, accustomed to when we're on the acceptance treadmill. Uh, Number four, a good trophy lives out a familial reality. Now, you know the Bible has metaphors, okay? Is there an English uh, nut here that can just tell everyone uh, what a metaphor is? He's an English, well, maybe not an English nut. That's, that's not correct grammar, is it? No, I'm insulting them. Is there someone who's an English expert, or even just anyone who actually wants to share with everyone what a metaphor is? Or not? Okay, so is the story true or, or not true? Not necessarily, all right? So here's, here's the thing. When you read in the Bible that you're part of God's family, that is not a story that explains something else. That's actually reality. Like, it's not a metaphor. God does, God's not speaking by metaphor when he says that he's adopted you into his family in Ephesians 1. He's telling you something that actually is. And the way that he's done it is he's made you alive in Christ. So do you know what that means? If you are attached to Christ and you're adopted and you're stuck to him and you're being made alive in him, then you get treated by the Father like Christ gets treated. Who wants that? I want that. Yeah, it's like, I'm up for that. All right, I'm taking a, a number in the line at the deli and I'm, I'm in for that one. Right? That's, that's a good plan. So here's, here's the thing, a good trophy of grace operates as a child because they are not because they're like one because they actually are so one way that you could think about this is uh, 
how do you talk to him? How much do you talk to him? All right, so now we're thinking about, okay, we're not thinking dodgy dad. We're thinking good dad. Like, you've never seen good dad. How many times would you talk to him during the day? How many times would you want him to talk to you? How many times would you pick up the Bible? Not because someone up the front says it's a good way to impress God, but because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves to speak through that to you and you can have a conversation with him through the day. A good trophy lives out a familial reality. Here's the last one. A good trophy operates with an abundance mindset. Now, you guys have a story, right? Uh, Mark 2, I think it is. Remember those four guys, they grabbed their paralytic bud. So, hey, buds, you're in some serious trouble and you've been a paralytic for a long time and we've heard about this guy, Jesus. Now, I'm not writing new stuff into the Bible. I'm just trying to characterise it for you. Some of you are going, oh, geez, he is going to hell. Um, so they, they, uh, they grab their maintenance. like, we've heard of this guy, Jesus, and he's healing people. We've just got to get you to Jesus and we reckon you'll be right. So they get up on top of the roof, start banging around, probably through some kind of thatched, dirt kind of roof, and then lower it down. I mean, that would have been weird. Jesus was preaching inside. I mean, that's weird, but I mean, lots of weird things happen to Jesus. Um, and they lower this guy down, and it's probably like if, if it was a Hollywood movie, it would be a thorough disappointment, wouldn't it? Because they lower him down, and pretty much the first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. And we go, oh, <laughs> didn't you memorise the script? <laughs> like, that's not what you're meant to stay at the start. Like, you don't do that. Look at the guy. He hasn't been able to walk for all these years. But what's Jesus actually doing? Jesus is actually dealing with that man's greatest need. And it cost Jesus the most to deal with that man's greatest need. And it cost Jesus the most to deal with your greatest need. It was a great expense to him. Uh, First Peter, I think, says that we weren't saved with perishable things. We were saved with the precious blood of Christ. You see, at the end of the day, what Jesus has organized to resolve for you is your greatest, deepest need. And it cost him the most. So here's, here's my point. If God has dealt with your greatest need in the death of Jesus on the cross, would it ever be right to have a poverty mindset about God's generosity? No, it wouldn't. Now, some of you are going, oh, I've got to stop doing that. That's not what I'm talking about, all right? This is not about being good enough here. It's like, how can you actually get into a point, get to a place where you just realize that God, at the core of who God is, He is generous liberal and affluent in mercy and grace toward you. Don't get around thinking that God's stingy. <laughs> okay? Some of you kind of go, uh, I'd, seriously, I would pray about that, but um, I, I don't think he wants to give it. Well, just let him work that out. You don't have to make that decision. That's not your decision to make. You talk to him. And see, here's the thing. If you think and you dead set deep down believe that God is generous at the core of who he is toward you, you'll ask him for lots of stuff. And you're going to talk to him about lots of stuff. 
And you know what you're even going to do? There's some times where God's not going to give you what you want. And you know what is going to help you in those moments when you don't get what you want, especially when not getting what you want is very painful for you? What you need to do is you need to not go, God's not generous. What you do need to do is you need to go back to what he did for you on the cross and go, I have a rock-solid guarantee that he is abundantly generous toward me. So now what I actually need to do is I need to look for an expression of his mercy and grace that's different to what I think it should be. Because it will be there. It will be there. There are many, many people throughout history to whom God hasn't released them from the pressure that they've been under, but has supplied his presence to them to be able to walk through it. And that is a strange mercy and grace indeed. And it's not the one that we typically go looking for when we're in pain. And I understand that. And I, and I don't mean to be harsh in any way about that because I, I do the same thing. But here's the thing, that the death of Christ on the cross, if you're a trophy of grace and life hurts like hell and you're just going, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this and I've prayed and I've asked God to get rid of it and he hasn't gotten rid of it, at that point we're not saying and we don't want to say that God's not generous because whatever your physical need is, is not as desperate as your spiritual need. So we're going back to that and we're saying Christ died on the cross for me. He met my deepest spiritual need. And so I'm locking it in that God's generous. So I'm going to keep talking to him and I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep asking him. I'm going to keep going to him because he is generous. Listen to uh, Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what do we do? We, as Christians, ought to be the most optimistic people on the planet. True? And we ought to be the people who are most positive about every situation. Why? Because God is in charge and because God is good and he's gracious and merciful. And so we walk into it with an expectation that he's going to be up to something. <laughs> you know, you go back to creation in Genesis 1. Why is everything good? Because he's good. That's all he ever does. He can't do not good. So when he creates things, and you read it in Genesis 1, he created stuff and he saw that it was good. Of course. That's what happens when you're good. You just make good stuff. And that's what he's like. He, he gets around and he's doing good things all the time. And so you, you kind of... I mean, maybe for you, Romans 8.32 is a good verse for you to memorise. Doesn't that speak to the disappointment of, of pain and the struggle of pain? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?